0: So what are you waiting for? Let's get Ready to Thrive. Hi guys, welcome to Ready to Thrive. Um, This interview with Becca Bowman, um, I think is deeply impactful. It's not an easy conversation to listen to as we talk about um, some of the hard things that Becca has walked through over the last few years. Um, But she does such a great job sharing with how she has walked through this place of pain, um, alongside joy, and so um, I do really encourage you to um, listen when you're able to be in a place where you can cry, because you you may cry. Um, grab a few Kleenexes and just listen as Becca shares her heart. And then I would love for you to support Becca by not only buying her book on Amazon, her book that just came out yesterday. Um, also, leaving a review. A review is actually really key um, for authors. And so, if you could do that, I know that'd be so encouraging for Becca. Um, I am so encouraged as she was sharing her story with me. And I'm really excited for you guys to take a listen today. So, I will stop talking and let you do just that. Here is my conversation with Becca. I am so honored to have on the podcast with me today, Becca Bowman. And um, I'm actually just going to let Becca introduce herself. And her story. Um, She has a book that is releasing um, probably the time of this podcast, hopefully has released the day before. Uh, And I want you just to um, maybe stop and and, uh, grab a box of Kleenex, um, but just give a really good listen to uh, what Becca has to share with us today.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. I know we've been trying to make this happen for a while, so I'm so glad we got this scheduled. Um, Yeah, I'm Becca. I am... Uh, a mom to two boys, a wife to a track coach. And so we've moved around a lot as he's had different positions all over, loved every place we've ever lived. We've done the Midwest, Southern California and Idaho. Um, I was a children's pastor for about 10 years and then, um, wound up making a big change to stay home when we got a pretty devastating diagnosis for both our boys. So, um, uh, Titus, our oldest was born in 2010 and Eli in 2013. And we were, uh, we had both the boys with us when Titus had his first seizure. And um, that came out of nowhere. He was three and a half years old and was just, you know, doing amazing. Um, and, you know, they've sort of rolled into 14 months of searching and trying to figure out what's going on with him, his, um, seizures evolved. He started having all different kinds. Some were really long, some were really short. We got to the point where we were counting over a hundred a day. Um, and like I said, this was just kind of coming out of nowhere. We had no idea what it was linked to, what could be causing the seizures. Um, he started having vision problems he started falling a lot. There was just all kinds of really scary symptoms that were happening that we had never, you know, even given a thought to, like it was just not our reality
0: (laughs) right before it happened. So Becca, before he had his first seizure, Mm -hmm. um, both of your boys uh, were just totally normal little boys.
1: Yeah. Like what did,
0: what did a Saturday look like for you guys?
1: Oh, well, I mean, Titus was three years older than Eli. So when when Eli was born, we had, you know, a little preschooler on our hands and this little nugget. <laughs> and so it was playing at the park and getting together with friends, um, hanging out and wrestling on the ground. The boys wrestled all the time. I was constantly like, do I jump in here? Is this a boy thing?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you just have these two totally normal boys. Titus is potty training and he's in preschool and he's speaking and he's learning to write and all of those things.
1: Yeah. I mean, he was a little bit delayed with his speech um, and his fine motor skills. Looking back, we could see a few things, but at the time those weren't alarming that he was in like some early intervention, therapy and they were all convinced like he'd catch up
0: in no time. So, yeah. So he has his first seizure. Um, then you, like you said, you have 14 months where you're trying to figure out what's going on the whole time. His health is just declining rapidly
1: so fast. Yeah. It got really scary. So his first seizure was February. And then a whole year after that March, the March, a year after we, he was hospitalized for a few weeks and um, it was terrifying. He lost six pounds um, in that month. He refused to drink. He was choking on things. He was falling all the time. Like when he'd walk, I'd have to literally form kind of a bubble around him with my arms. Like he couldn't go anywhere without me being right there. He'd Fall straight down on the tile floor, or knock his head on something. Um, it was terrifying, you know. And, and you, you're just holding your baby. Like there's got to be something we can do to help him. But I, we could. It was like we we're fighting blindfolded against
0: whatever this was. Um, and like you said, he would be having seizures sometimes, up to a hundred times a day. So this mm-hmm. is like you're you're on <laughs> all oh. the time. You must yes. have been just so um, stressed here, Max. Yeah, it was.
1: <laughs> I look back and I'm still just baffled by how we did it. Um, it. Yeah, you said it. We were on 24-7. It was morning, night. As soon as you like feel like you're going to get a little bit of rest, you hear the scream that comes right before a seizure and you just bolt out. I mean, I got to the point where any noise, I was bolting out of bed. Like I didn't even register what it was yet. I just bolted. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's crazy how your, your body gets used to traumatic things happening all the time. And it's just always in that like fight mode, like jump and go, go to where it is.
0: So, so you're in this place, you don't have a diagnosis, you're Mm -hmm. living on all the time and your youngest son, what's happening with him at this season? So he's got a whole different set of things. Um, Eli
1: was having a lot of issues spitting up all of his nutrients. (laughs) So he was diagnosed failure to thrive. So uh, Titus started having seizures in February. In May, we went in for a major stomach surgery for Eli, placed a G-tube, a feeding tube um, in his stomach so that we could get him back up to healthy weight. And um that worked, thankfully. He um did amazing after that surgery. It his nutrition went up and he just started um developing like his peers. So he was he was doing amazing. Um it was a very weird thing to have my three and a half, four and a half year old, depending on what, what time frame you're talking about, and my little, you know, baby and one-year-old switch you know, roles. It was like, I had my oldest son, but he required more care than my little one. So it was very odd. And I felt, I felt a lot of guilt, if I'm being honest, um, just as a mom. Because, um, you know, those little early years, you're like, I want to bond and I I want to um, be whatever I need to be for my baby. And, and you want to make sure you're totally taking care of your oldest child too, but his care is like skyrocketed and you're suddenly having to figure out how to do this um, in a way that you never thought
0: motherhood would look. So, yeah. (laughs) Um, So take us to that place of finding out the diagnosis. So in that
1: Year, in that 14 months, we wound up moving from the Chicago area down to Southern California um, for my husband's job. And when we got there, we re-locked into all the specialists. Um, when we met with our neurologist, we just said, we really, really want to find out what, what is going on. So what can we do? And he gave us a list of ways that we were going to just start checking off you know, things. The biggest, the last thing on his list was the epilepsy comprehensive panel. And it's a genetic panel that tests for all these different, um, gene disorders that cause epilepsy, cause seizures. And what came back on that was our final diagnosis. So he called us into the office. It was April of 2015. So like I said, it was over a year later and, um, he said, I finally have answers. And when he told us, um, I, the day before I had done like all this searching on what diseases this diagnose this uh, test looks for. And, um, and I found this one and I was reading it and I thought, oh my gosh, this sounds just like Titus. This is like textbook. And so I was in tears the night before and my husband's going. It might not be that. It's okay. Let's just wait to see what the doctor says. And I'm like, Oh, I know. And when we got in there, and he said it, I recognized the name from the night before reading, and I just, uh, what do you say? <laughs> um, we were kind of, we were obviously, you know, devastated because this is a diagnosis called Batten, and it's fatal. Um, no child's ever lived. Outlived it. No, no child has ever been healed from it. There's not a treatment. There's no no cure. And um, he's had it since birth, and it was this thing that's just been like living in him since he was born. And we didn't know, and now it's out. It's coming out. And um, then we find out that it's genetic, and which we knew from the test. But our youngest had a 25 percent chance of having it as well, and he encouraged us to get him tested. So, um, you know, so we did. And uh, the test came back a few weeks later in June. All, you know, insurance takes a while to approve things. Um, and we were on vacation in Idaho when we got the diagnosis for Eli, but he also had it. And again, it just felt like we just did this. We were just on the phone calling all the family, telling them about Titus. And now it's like deja vu, like we're doing it all over again with Eli. Mm-hmm. And it, it, Just was mind blowing and mind numbing that both of our boys, you know, wound up with this and that this was our new reality that we could be childless in a handful of years.
0: And this Uh, just came so out of nowhere this um, diagnosis and all of this that's coming about. And what, like, if you can remember back in that time, like, what's your process with God like? Like, how are you? because I feel like that's a big part of this grief process, and right that you're already starting this process. Like, what does that look like?
1: Yeah, it's been a, a, a journey <laughs> with my faith. I I am thankful. I grew up in a home that didn't they didn't candy coat God as a He's a blessings God and He's a God who, if you do all the right things, will pour blessings on you and everything's going to go well for la- in life. I was exposed to death at a fairly young age. um, And I understood that things were broken. So I think that perspective really helped me understand how to filter my belief in God in our scenario. Um, But that doesn't mean I didn't have questions. It doesn't mean I didn't beg for him to heal my boys. I wasn't, I mean, (laughs) I was angry. I had moments of major anger. I remember flipping him off once I, you know, got off as I'm praying and my husband goes, did you apologize after you were done? I was like, no, I'm mad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, and I was, I was just, you know, it's, um, you think of this God who could control this situation and he could fix it if he wanted to. And I can't control all the controls stripped out of my hands. Um, and so I had to really dig into what I believed about God's character and who he was in the midst of this. Um, I even wrote a blog post at one point. It was for my heart, but I know it res- resonated with a lot of people. It was um, why the why matters. And it, for me, it, it goes back to the beginning of time when we chose to allow evil in. And God wants us to love him back without being forced And so he's not going to force his way in. There's free will. And as a result of that free will, there's brokenness. And it is not the end. And I had to keep holding on to that. This is broken right now. But there is redemption. And (laughs) I got to the place where I was like, awed by God's love. Because he he didn't run in and rescue and heal Titus here right now. But you know what he did do? He defeated death. And death was what my boys are up against. It's what we're all up against. And the fact that he defeated the very thing that could completely take down my son so that he could be whole and new and redeemed and I could see him again one day, um, that's love and faithfulness and um, victory. So those are the things I kept holding on to. In the middle of all of this, it's hard to have enough for what's expected of you. And and I also saw God's faithfulness in my community. And so I talk a lot about that in my book and just on my blog page um, about how people have come around us and just been so generous and so, um, man, I I don't know. I hear my story and I think sometimes people should have just like found the exit door and like, see, ya. <laughs> that sounds painful. And people just jumped in. And that was just another piece of evidence that God was with us, that he had not forsaken us. We were in a deep, dark hole, and he was down there with us.
0: Wow. I loved um, hearing the story of how uh, your church, and I'm I'm guessing it was a fairly new church to you, uh, oh. r- rallied around and bought a, um, you were homebound because you couldn't Uh, go out with Titus. And, and I love that your church stepped up, got the money to get you guys a van. But what I really loved is that I'm thinking you're using this van to go to the park, but you're like, no, we are road tripping. (laughs) Tell me like, where did you go as you're in this, you're in this hard place. Where are you off to in this van? Okay. So we, um, sorry, my dog,
1: that's okay. I'm so sorry. Um, okay. So we, we love vacationing. We've always grown up in homes that go on vacation and have a great road trip. Um, one of dne's like, I can't remember how he found out, but they had gifted us somebody we know <laughs> had gifted us a vacation rental in Utah. And we lived in Southern California. And um, so we, we had hospice on board with, with Titus. And I remember sitting our nurse down. I said, okay, we're going to take a trip. Um, he's on oxygen. He needs suction. He needs breathing treatments. He needs like this vest compression shaky thing. So many things, um, but we are going to go take this trip. And so can you equip us with everything we need for the next 10 days? And um, it was stressful. I'm not going to lie. I had my first migraine on that trip leaving, I threw up on the side of the road, (laughs) Um, just getting out. But we had 12 canisters of oxygen, two oxygen concentrators, so much medical equipment, medications, syringes, extension tubes, whatever. But you know what? We had the best time. Um, we, we played in the pool and we had like his oxygen tubes. Like we got the longest one we could possibly find like 30 feet or something. It's like floating across the water. And, um, he loved it. He was just kicking away in the water. Cause it's so freeing for his body to float in it. And we had the best memories. We actually got to meet another Batten family on that vacation. And that was so meaningful for us. They had just lost their daughter like the year before. Um, that was my first conversation with somebody about the actual process of losing Titus. And, um, I, it still was just exactly what I needed to hear because we actually lost him just a few months after that. Um, and she was the one I texted when we got to the end of his life. And I said, I need, I need to know, am I bad thinking these things and, you know, and all that. So that connection was so beautiful to have had, um, but yeah, we, our church did a few things for us. They actually got us um, Disneyland passes, annual Disneyland passes along with this van. We took off, we went to Disneyland. We take Titus to the beach. Um, we went to Idaho with the boys and did trips with the family. Our, I guess our philosophy was that we still want to live and we still want to adventure and Titus can't, seek those things out for himself anymore but we still wanted to give him those things so it didn't slow us down too much
0: (laughs) it's so incredible um so I love that even in in this hard place you were seeking joy and seeking Mm -hmm. to live and I think that's um my guess is that it doesn't mean it was easy right like you shared you got a migraine this was a hard hard Place to be walking in. Uh, you were doing things to seek joy. Um, you did mention that um, a few months after that is when Titus passed, mm-hmm. um, and that um, can you tell us a little bit about what that season of your life was like?
1: Yeah, it was one of those seasons that kind of approached unexpectedly. A lot of the kids with that and disease can live in sort of a declined state for a long time. Um, And Titus regressed really fast. And we thought maybe we'd sort of plateau out and hang somewhere for a while. But it became very apparent that his body was was done. His kidneys and his bladder and all these different organs were failing. And I remember thinking, I think this might be the end but not knowing how to bring that up because I almost felt like it was me giving up. And I knew that wasn't a true statement. And so (laughs) I emailed that friend I was just talking about, and I, I said it out loud because I feel like we can say so many lies in our heads and we have this like narrative that goes on and on. But when we say it out loud, we can hear those lies and we can hear truth better. Mm -hmm. um, when We can speak things out loud. So I tried to make a practice of that and I, said that to her. And she, you know, of course came back with love and grace and truth in her response. Um, and, and I always say that my greatest act of loving my boys was in letting go, Mm -hmm. um, to keep him here in the state he was in was desperation and it was selfishness wanting him with me as much as I could have him. Um, but his body was clearly done. And Hospice came over one day and she brought it up and she said, Becca, I want you to know that I'm seeing end of life stages, you know, in him. And I said, so am I, but I didn't want to say anything. (laughs) And that began the conversation of, you know, what that's going to look like. So we actually had a whole meeting with um, our pastor and his wife. My parents were there, the whole hospice team. And we talked through what it was going to look like. What were our decisions, you know, how to keep Titus comfortable And we literally just held vigil by his side, like the whole rest of the time. It was the end of August when we had that conversation. And then all the way through, he passed September 17th. So all the way through that time, we just, life kind of froze outside of our doors. People were, we let people come in, the doors were revolving. People were in and out, um, saying hi to Titus, saying their last goodbye, um, Spending time with us, bringing meals in, singing. We had a worship service in our living room one night, um, praying with us, and and we just we were with him the whole time. Um, and it was special. He did wake up a couple mornings right before he passed, and he, you know, he groaned and he squeezed my hand, and he hadn't done those things in so long. So it was such a gift. I felt like he was trying to just that last connection. Mm it was really special to have that. And, um, and I remember all of us, my husband and I, and we encourage the family to do this too is to give him permission to go. Um, we just felt like he could feel our love. And I know that he probably was hanging on for us. And I just remember, um, right before he took his last breath, I told him, you can go, I will miss you. Um, but you can go be with Jesus and I will see you soon and we'll be okay. We love you so much, you know? Um, and he did, he went and it was like so peaceful. It's like, he just was there and then he wasn't and he was with, with Jesus. Um, so yeah, <laughs> very, I, I write about that scene in, quite a bit of detail in my book because there's a lot that went on in like just a few minutes. Um, but God was so good to us in those moments and Titus was so comfortable and so at peace. And, you know, I'm just, uh, I just can't wait to see him
0: again. <laughs> so, um, You talk a lot about this idea of how, um, I think I'm getting right, pain and joy yeah. kind of live in the same place. And that's what I see right here in you is that, um, this is, this is still painful. This is still emotional, yet you have that, um, glimmer of hope and that glimmer of joy. And, you know, you shared about it so beautifully earlier on that, um, our hope is not found here in this broken world, but, um, our hope is found in Christ. And so I think my guess is that that for you has been this big game changer in terms of a heart change and being able to find joy throughout this hard season. Because um, it in some ways hasn't really gotten any easier. You still have this diagnosis with your son, uh, your second son. And, and shortly afterwards, uh, after Titus passes away, um, you actually... <laughs> have to take off. And, um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So
1: it was actually today that we're recording on the 12th of September. So, um, it was today, three years ago that we got this email that Eli was getting invited into the clinical trial that was just opening up, um, their other phase. And I remember holding Titus counting his breaths and looking at this email and looking at my husband, like, what are we supposed to do with this? Um, so long story short, Titus passes away on the 17th and on the 27th of September, we boarded a plane to go to Columbus, Ohio and get Eli brain surgery and get started with this enzyme replacement therapy that goes straight into his brain, um, every other week. And so we would live at home for 10 days and in, you know, in Southern California and then in Columbus for four. And we did that back and forth, back and forth for six months. Wow. Um, and again, it was just this, like, you look at that and you go, that is too much. That's way too much. Um, but again, God was just so amazing to put people around us. We had a lady in Columbus who d- we had a mutual friend. She didn't know us. She opened her home and had us stay at her house every time. She had a, a, a two rooms that we could stay in every time in a bathroom. Um, she let us use her vehicle um, we had a guy ride his bike from Irvine, California up to Montana, raising thousands of dollars to cover all of the plane flights and all of the you know, financial need that we had to get back and forth to get him this treatment. And we had this doctor in California that was advocating the whole time to get a treatment site set up there. And he wound up being successful in getting it open under clinical trial as the second site in the U.S., and we were able to move home, wow. and it's so awesome because that started two years prior. Like when we got the diagnosis, that's when that started. The doctors started advocating for a treatment site there, and um, up to date, I think they're still the they're the biggest treatment site in the U.S. right now. They have, I think, nine kids getting treated at their site, and I just feel like that's a legacy of Titus's. He's the one that kind of sparked that um, advocacy and passion in the medical team there. And now lives are being changed as a result. So, and what, what does that treatment mean for Eli? So the treatment is, um, a bit of a mystery. We know it works to slow things down a lot. Eli's the same exact age that Titus was when he passed, um, now, and he's had 78 infusions. Um, he can still walk. He is. He's really speech delayed, but he he has words and he is learning. He can spell his name E L Y. Um, he's blind, so that is interesting. Working, around, you know, trying to figure out how to navigate a child who can move by himself but is blind. Um, but he does amazing. Um, you know, adapting to that. Um, he. He had seizures, but they're very well under control with medication and with the enzyme replacement therapy. Um, we just don't know long-term what this looks like. Eli was very young when he started getting treatment. He was, it was before he showed symptoms, any big symptoms. Um, and there weren't really any kids in the US to look at ahead of him to say, that's what it'll look like. Most of those kids who started treatment were already um, in some pretty big regression. So, um, yeah, so we take it day by day. We don't really know, but we know that it is working and giving him more quality days and more days with us.
0: And how do you, I think that's one of my questions for you is, um, I know for a lot of people, um, they are living in this place with a diagnosis either for themselves or for their family. And so there's that tension in that place of how do we live out our days fully, yet feeling like, how do I not let my brain go there to this um, scary place? Like, how do you live out these days? Well,
1: Oh, some days I don't, I will just say that right now. I write about this and I put it in my book and I think people think, wow, she's got it figured out. It's a lesson I am learning over and over and over again. Um, one of the things I learned in the middle of the really hard stuff with Titus and Eli is that I could allow um, the future to rob me of my present moments and the fear of what was going to happen, rob me of what I had right now. And I loved my boys so much. I still do. And I would not, I didn't want that. I wanted to absorb everything I had with them. And so I, probably to my detriment, I learned how to live in the moment. I'm still, really trying to work on like planning things and committing to things because I, I basically got to the point where it was like, I know what I'm doing for the next hour. I have no idea what I'm making for dinner. I'll get there when dinner comes, you know, (laughs) I'm right here right now. And it it was beautiful. And, and I still um, love living in those moments and just really absorbing and not thinking about all the stuff that I have coming. Um, so I've, I've had to learn how to balance that because I still have to manage a house and feed people. <laughs> yeah. But, um, Oh, I lost my thought about what I was going to say
0: next about that. <laughs> well, if it comes back to you, let me know. Thank um, you. I want to ask you a few other little questions. Um, and now I've lost my thoughts. So maybe we can contagious. <laughs> clip this part out. Um, I guess I just wanted to know, um, You've shared a little bit about when you were going through a hard season, how people were helpful for you. I just want to know, is there anything else, if we know people going through a really hard season, what can we say or do to help them? Or what can we not say or do? Do you have anything um, to share? Yeah. So I think what was most helpful for me
1: were people who just showed up. Um, The people who just said, I'm doing this. And, and then they did it. I had a really hard time when you're in the middle of heaviness and managing a lot of things, your brain is full and it's traumatized. And, um, it's very hard to think of things to ask people to do for you. So a lot of people will say, if there's anything I can do, let me know. And you say, thank you so much. And then literally the next moment when you're in like some kind of trauma or chaos, you you can't even think about who was that that I was going to call. Um. And so to have people, I had a a friend of mine, I was sitting across from for lunch one day and she said, Becca, I have budgeted, um, for your house to get cleaned twice a month. And I was like about to argue and she goes, no, we're not, we're not talking about this. Like this is happening, you know, and she just did it, um, to little things. I had a friend just show up with an in and out shake one day. Like, I think you need one of these today. I'm like, I do. Thank you. You know, um, I had uh, one of my birth, my last, my birthday is September. And so that was our last, you know, few weeks with Titus. And I had a friend just bring over my favorite breakfast place and sit on the floor with me while I sat with Titus and we ate out of styrofoam containers and had birthday celebration. I think just the act of showing up is a really big deal. I think people too, uh, they worry too much about having the right words. And I tell people a lot, we've been through all of this and I still don't feel like I have the right words. The fact is there's not words to fix this. Um, most of these situations are just terrible, you know, and it's like, we can't, we can't come in with a pat answer and fix it or smooth it over with words. Um, but we can show up and we can link arms and we can, you know, be broken together. And, and that's, we're all broken. We all experience things, and I think we can have empathy to
0: that level with each other. Thank you. That's so beautiful. Um, and how in this uh, season, either in that time or in your current season, how do you stay connected to your husband? How have you found that?
1: Yeah. So that's a great question. We um, we have been so fortunate when we lived in California. Uh, his aunt and uncle actually made it their mission to learn all the things about Titus's needs. And they would come over and they'd say, okay, you guys are gonna go get away for a weekend or or whatever. And so they would they would take over and stay the night and do that and we could get away. Um, One of the other things we made sure we did was we hired a babysitter and trained her with everything she needed to know. um, And we had her come over once a week. And if we were exhausted and we didn't feel like going and doing much, we'd just walk down the road. We live right by a lake. We would just walk down the road to the lake and hang out. Um, But we had one night every single week. That was our time together um, to do whatever we wanted. And we could go, you know, do something big or we could just take a walk around the neighborhood. Um, That was really important. The other thing that was really important for us that I would not have had the foresight to know, but our pastor Um, kind of guided us through this, was having a conversation about what grief looks like and is going to look like for both of us. Um, We had that conversation before Titus passed away. And it was really helpful for me personally to hear my husband explain how grief impacts him and how he reacts to it and what to expect. And then for me to be able to tell him the same thing, we're total opposites, So it looks very different. Um, but to have had somebody guide us through those conversations, knowing that this is gonna be a major impact on our marriage and we need to have some open conversation about it. And then we can refer back to it, you know, when we're in the middle of arguing. Do you remember how I said I do that? That's what this is. Um and yeah, so I, I think those are some of the things that have really helped us stay
0: connected. I love that. I love that that is um, those are all very practical, tangible things not always easy to know how to do that you've put that work in to say, we're going to, we're going to train people to be able to do this. And I think that's so wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last question I have for you is just, you know, even in this season, how do you care for yourself? Cause you're still on very much. So, mm-hmm. um, so how do you, um, what are some of the things that you do intentionally to really care for you? It's looked
1: different, I think, depending on the the seasons. Um, I remember in the middle of everything, it was really hard to get away. Honestly, sometimes it was like eating a donut. I love donuts. And it looked like that. That's what self-care looked like. Um, I, I love playing soccer. I played all the way through college, but I hadn't played in over a decade. And when we moved back to Idaho, I had a friend who invited me to come play again. I'm like, are you crazy? But when I got back out there, I thought, oh my goodness, 40 minutes just went by and I didn't think about a thing. I was just out playing and it was so fun. And so that has become a self-care thing for me. Um, Starting my blog and writing out what I was feeling, because sometimes when I'm writing something, it pulls out so much more of it for me. I can process better. Um, That was healing and self-care for me, just being able to those words out there. Um, so yeah, it's just looked different differently. Um, and for me, it's never been go get a massage and get my nails done one that's too much money. And I, I guess maybe, you know, I'd rather go for a run or, um, spend time with my, with Jesus or my husband or eat a donut. <laughs> you know, Um, yeah, but I, I have had to learn how to express my needs because I am one of those people who will just work myself into the ground doing for my boys and for my husband. And even, even like a couple days ago, I was telling my husband, I'm feeling so overwhelmed and I have no time to work out in my brain what's going on. Um, I'm exhausted. I have all these things I feel like I should be doing and I'm not doing them and just saying that out loud to him, he was like, Becca, why don't you just take an hour after Eli goes to bed and have some time? I'm like, really? Are you okay with that? Because I always think of that as our time. And, you know, just bringing him into that and helping him hear what I need, I've had to really learn how to work on sharing what I need. And I'm finding he's willing to let me
0: have that. <laughs> I just have to be vocal about it. Well, I think you've shared twice now about um, just the power of sharing how you're feeling. So you talked mm-hmm. about sharing with that woman um, who shared the, you know, same disease with her daughter and, um, and being able to get those things out of your head and out of your mouth. And you can, like you even said, you can hear sometimes the lies and the truth, or you just need somebody else to say back to you what you need to hear. And so I think that's so great, um, to be able to find people who we can be honest with and, Um, share with what we need. And then I think, like you said, go after some of those things that you need. I also love that you shared the words you used when you spoke about soccer. You just said, I played. I played. Mm -hmm. And yes, you played soccer, but it was like this um, freedom Mm -hmm. in that place. And I know I felt that same way a few times I've gone wakeboarding, uh, which is not for 40 minutes. It's more like two minutes because I'm not very strong, but (laughs) I just know that I've been in those places where I'm like, I'm not anything in this moment. I'm not a mom. I'm not whatever. I'm just feeling so free. And I think as um, moms, we can get that place where we are spending all of our time caring for other people. And so find those things where we can play, um, can definitely spark some joy and bring some life to us. Um, Becca, I've so loved having this conversation with you. And I think that we could probably talk for another hour um, so much more to learn from you. Um, But you have a book that's just come out and I'm so excited um, can you tell us where people can find you, where they can find your book, all of those things?
1: Yeah. So my book can be found easy peasy on Amazon. Can't steal my joy. The journey to a different kind of brave is what it is called. Um, my website is can't steal my And then you guys can follow our journey on Facebook. We are a team for Titus and Eli. It's E-L-Y. We're weird like that. We spelled his name awkwardly. Um, And then I'm over on Instagram. It's can't steal my joy number two. Um, And so you
0: can find me there too. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us. Um, I learned a lot from you and I can't wait to even listen back and um, get a little more out of it. So thank you. Wish you well in this book launch and all that you do going forward. Thank you so much, Jacqueline thanks so much for listening today. I really am so encouraged knowing how many of you are being encouraged by this message. And if you have found it helpful, would you mind just sharing it with a friend, leaving five stars or even a review wherever you listen to podcasts, Podcasts, keeping it super professional. Um, If you want to connect more with me, Head over to Instagram, where I'm at Jacqueline.Widener. Or if you want some free resources, head over to my website at jacquelinewidener.com. This has been an Extend Network production.